Good morning. Glad to see all of you gentlemen here this fine, this fine morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's getting cold out there, isn't it? I hope you got your uh, warm food from Shannon and your delicious coffee this morning. How great was it? We had an acapella song this morning. Thanks, Robert. Well, fellas, it's always a, a pleasure to be here with you uh, as we open God's Word together. And we've certainly come a long way thus far, haven't we? Four and a half chapters of this rich book of Romans. We've seen wonderful truths, crucial texts. But believe it or not, the text that we're coming to this morning is about as crucial as it gets. And I know the Ronan joke for all of us is that every Sunday morning, wherever your pastor is, says this is the most crucial text in the entire Bible. We hear that every Sunday. But truly, this is a crucial text uh, for two reasons. Number one, this passage, verses 12 through 21 in chapter 5, is kind of a bridge text. Summarizes everything that comes before it and connects what follows. So that's important. And secondly... Uh, the Apostle Paul drops some heavy-duty theological bombs on us, and hopefully we can look at those in toto. But before we dive into the text, I want us to think about those two aspects of this passage. So, number one, the summary aspect of this passage. You know, I've been trying to rack my brain of how to summarize four and a half chapters of Romans to you first-timers if you're here, and it's simply impossible. There's so much great stuff. But lo and behold, earlier this week I came across this article from 2002 uh, regarding the Met up in New York, okay? And this, my friends, is a softball from the Lord, okay? It is the essence of art imitating life. And I really believe that in this article, we get the major rocks that we've studied so far. So I want to share it with you. It's just hilarious and uh, uh, really uh, enlightening. So this is the highlights of the article from 2002. A 15th century marble statue of the first man, Adam, by the sculptor Tullio Lombardo fell Sunday evening at the Met and broke into a dozen pieces, okay? A 15th century marble statue of the first man, Adam, fell and broke into a dozen pieces. Now, that's crucial, all right? 15th century, it's not like you can pick it up at Walmart. Pretty sure someone lost their job over this one. But what's interesting is, is what they say next. The statue's fall is a museum's nightmare. However, Harold Holzer... The museum's chief spokesman said that the six-foot-three statue collapsed inexplicably, but on its own, for there was a crack in the foundation. All right, are you picking up what this article is cooking? All right, the statue fell on its own. The spokesman then said that the pieces of marble were strewn on the patio floor, which was taped off by a string, much like a crime scene, kind of like a crime scene in the garden, perhaps. As the statue shattered, get this, the face itself remained legible. So even though the statue broke into a dozen pieces, the image of Adam was still eligible. All right, that's hilarious. Let's come on now. Then they said that while the damage is catastrophic, this is awesome, the prognosis for a full restoration are better than we had hoped for. And once the restorative work is complete by the sculptors, the statue would return whole. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's low-hanging fruit, my friends. This summarizes everything that we've looked at so far. In fact, it summarizes really the essence of the Bible. What do we know? God created Adam perfectly in his image. However, Adam fell into sin all on his own. 
Now, in his fall, he brought catastrophic damage not only to himself, but to all of his descendants, which includes guys like you and me. And even though the image of God still remains in us, we are damaged, we are broken, we are bound to sin and death, and completely unable to fix ourselves just like that statue. What we need is, is a sculptor. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is that sculptor. And the mission of Jesus is to gather little broken atoms like you and me and transforms us into little Christs. And that's the mission of Jesus. And that's exactly what Sandy talked about last week in verses 1 through 11. That when we place our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, in his work, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his death-conquering resurrection from the grave, he restores us. He puts us back together. He renews us. And ultimately, he will glorify us. That is where we've been, gentlemen, and that is certainly where we are going. So that is the summary of all the things that really we've looked at thus far. Now, the second aspect which makes this passage very crucial for us is the theological truths that Paul communicates. Now, Paul in this passage sets out to explain how the restorative work of Christ is impossible, is possible for us. Now, Paul is a good pastor, okay? So he's anticipating that there's probably some realists in his congregation that are having a hard time with what he talked about in verses 1 through 11. Paul, I want to believe you, I believe you, I love Jesus, but I'm a linear thinker. I mean, how in the world will the actions of one man restore so many? Questions that are good questions, questions that we should ask. Well, in this passage, Paul shows out, sets out to show us how that works, to show us how we can understand how salvation works and how we can be secure in it. And he does it primarily through a typological study of the first man, Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, as humanity's representative heads. Now, we'll talk about that in just a second, but typology. Typology is the study of trying to see the glory of one thing by placing it next to something that is similar but ultimately different, okay? So an example of that would be that if I got my wife, Sarah, up here by herself, and we did some, did some deductive notes, we would say, well, my wife, Sarah, she's roughly five foot seven. She has blonde hair, blue eyes, fair complexion, attractive, articulate person. We would say that. But if you put a bum like me up next to her, you would see her as she is, a beauty queen. Then you would see me as I really am, completely out of my league, okay? Which is what Sandy tells me all the time, believe it or not. I've, I've grown used to it, it's okay. But that's essentially what typology is. It's kind of like a Rembrandt painting. If you know anything about Rembrandt paintings, you only see the glory and the light of the object in the forefront when it's set against the backdrop of darkness. And that's what Paul is doing in his typological study. That's his strategy. So he has three points for us and three overall purposes. The first point is he wants us to contemplate the great ruin of man and Adam. The second point, he wants us to contemplate the great rescue of man and Jesus Christ. And thirdly, he wants us to contemplate the great reign of redeemed humanity in Christ. Those are our three points in this typological study. And the three purposes are these. He wants us to see the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand it. Secondly, he wants us to be secure in our salvation. And through this typological study, we see how we can be secure in our salvation. And thirdly, he wants to encourage us to live as we are as Christians, redeemed kings. 
So three points, three purposes. Now let's go ahead and dive into the text. It's Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Hear the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the, three, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together as brothers in this room. And Lord, we pray that you would meet with us. Father, by faith, we say that we believe in the Father who has set his love upon us. We believe in the Son who redeems us, and we believe in the Spirit who restores us. But Father, we are faithless, and we pray that you would meet with us, that you would encourage us, that you would open our eyes to the gift which Christ makes available for those that are in him. And Lord, we pray that through this text, we would see your glory. We pray that you would guide my tongue and my mouth, that you would direct my words, and that you would open all of our hearts to your truth, not that we'd be informed by it, but that we'd be transformed by it. And we pray all this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so our first overall point, verses 12 through 14, the great ruin of man and Adam, 12 through 14. Now remember, I believe Paul is setting out to address possible objections from the realists in his congregation. Paul, I want to believe what you just told us in verses 1 through 11, but I just don't understand how that's possible given the fact how grave our sin situation is. So Paul in verses 12 through 14 sets out to show them, but first he says, listen, your problem is much worse than you actually think it is, all right? So in verse 12, we get a three-stage chain reaction of Adam's sin. Three stages. Now that first stage is in 12a. Sin enters the world through Adam's disobedience. That's the Barton translation. Sin enters the world through Adam's disobedience. Now the word for man in 12a can literally be translated Adam. In fact, Adam means mankind. So Paul is referring to Adam. What event is he referring to? Adam's initial transgression in the garden when he ate from the tree that he wasn't supposed to. All right, so what he is saying, what he's talking about here is original sin. 
Before Adam's disobedience, there was no sin in the world, but because Adam sinned against God, sin therefore entered the world. Now there's two things I really want to take from this first peg in this threefold chain reaction. Number one, Paul presupposes the historicity of Adam. Paul believes that Adam was and is a real person. Now, I know for the evangelicals in the room, that's a no-brainer. We believe that. We think that's essential. But make no mistake about it. We are in the minority, even amongst those people who sometimes call themselves Christians. Evangelicals are in the minority of believing in the historicity of Adam. Case in point, before I started working here, I was a college pastor at a uh, liberal arts college that was connected to a church. And so in my first lesson in my ministry, I talked about the pillars of the gospel, and so my first point, I was talking about sin and the historicity of Adam and so on and so forth. I thought it was a, a well-polished talk, but afterwards, I was surrounded by students. And I love these students. I was friends with them, but they thought I was the biggest moron in the entire world. I was like, what are y'all not getting? He goes, well, Barton, just today, our professor told us the exact opposite. So a Bible professor at a college associated with the church told these students that, Bible, that Adam was metaphorical. And they say, Barton, what do you have to say about that? And this is what I said. I didn't know what to say. So I just said, man, I think you should get your money back. <laughs> and here's why. You're getting hosed. And you're getting hosed because Scripture teaches in the historical Adam. Furthermore, Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, teaches a historical Adam. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Jesus said that God at the beginning created man and female. Not a metaphorical man or female, but a man and female, non-debatable. There are many doctrines that are debatable, secondary doctrines. Us Baptists and Presbyterians know all about that. Infant baptism, we can debate that till the cows come home. That's debatable. What's not debatable? The historicity of Adam. Why? Because Jesus teaches it explicitly. Now, if you go to page 162 in your stop book, he'll give you much more ammunition to talk about the historicity of Adam. He even gives you some scientific reasoning. But the reason I want to make this point clear is because the doctrine of original sin and the historicity of Adam is absolutely crucial to the doctrine of salvation. If Adam wasn't real, Paul's argument here in this chapter falls in on itself. Paul understood the importance of upholding the historical Adam, and so we must. So that's our first little subpoint. Secondly, the thing I want to say from 12a is that sin, when it entered the world, it was not simply an oops. Sorry, Lord, it wasn't an oops, but rather it was a power. The idea of sin is no longer commonplace in our world. You know, 30 years ago, even non-believers understood the concept of sin, the reality of sin. No longer. The people that I evangelize today simply do not believe in sin. And if they do, they think it's kind of like this relativistic thing based off what culture you live in that carries no weight. But what Paul says here, not only does sin exist, but it's much more heinous than you ever dared to imagine. Paul says that sin came in through Adam's disobedience in the garden. That's how sin enters our world. Now, what happened in the garden? It wasn't an oops, but as a willful attempt to dethrone God. D.A. Carson calls it the attempt to de-God God which is essentially what Adam did when he ate from that tree when he wasn't supposed to. What he was saying is, God, I don't need you. I can be God. I want your glory. I can be the decider of what is good and right and evil and wrong. I don't need you. 
That's what happened in the garden. Adam tried to dethrone God, so it's not an oops, but rather it's a mass rebellion. It wasn't, sorry, God, I broke your law, but it's a complete attempt to dethrone God. That's what happened in the garden, all right? Now, you see that this Bible, or rather uh, uh, our chapter in Romans 5, um, Paul says, listen, we have to understand the gravity of this uh, uh, attempt to dethrone God. It wasn't simply a, you know, a breaking of God's law, but rather it was a power of sin that entered through Adam. Okay, because he personifies, uh, Paul personifies sin in chapter 5 and in the rest of Romans. It's not just a small thing to thumb our nose at, but rather it's in a power, it's an environment. And we see this in Paul's language. In chapter 6, verse 13, he says, sin reigns. Okay, that doesn't sound like a small oops, but rather that sounds like an environment that's entered through the disobedience of Adam. He says, sin reigns over us all. 6.16, sin can be obeyed, Paul says. So again, it isn't this minor infraction of God's commandment, but rather sin itself is a master that demands obedience. So sin isn't this small thing, but through Adam, the power of sin enters our world. 6.23, sin pays wages. What wages does sin pay? It pays death. 7.11, sin deceives. The reason that people do not believe in sin anymore is because sin has deceived them. It's the great trick of Satan. Sin deceives us. And lastly, in 7.14, sin kills. Okay, so we're not talking about this little small thing, this minor breaking of God's commandment, but we're talking about a power, an environment that sin entered through Adam. So, to summarize 12a thus far, through the willful disobedient act of the historical Adam, the power and environment of sin enters our world. Now the second step in this three-chain reaction we see in 12b, death enters through the doorway of sin. Death enters through the doorway of sin. Again, there's two things I want us to pull from this. First and foremost, when Paul uses that word death, he's talking about total death. He's talking about the double whammy of spiritual and physical death. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God says the penalty of disobedience is death. Okay, so before Adam disobeyed God, he was immortal. But after he disobeyed God, no longer. He eventually died, okay? Physical death. Go to Romans 6, 23, where Paul says that the wages of sin is death. What he's talking about there is an eternal, perpetual death, a spiritual death, an eternal separation from God. So when we see Paul use that word death, okay, we're not just talking about simply dying, we're talking about death in toto, a complete death. So that's the first thing. But the second thing I want us to see is that death, all death, is far from natural. You see, death enters through sin, which meant death did not exist before sin. All death is unnatural. If you go onto your computers and you wiki unnatural death, uh, several categories will come up. The first category will be misadventure. And the example that it gave was being mauled by a bear, okay? We can agree that is uh, unfortunate, an unnatural death. An, exact, an example would be the, uh, uh, the grizzly man. That was actually on the page. Y'all remember the grizzly man? There was a documentary that came out about this guy who decided it was wise to live with grizzly bears for months on end. Guess what happened to him? He was mauled by a bear, okay? That's death by misadventure. That's an unnatural death. That was an example. Another example is car crash. Another example is murder. Another example is suicide. Another example is war. Another example is a terrorist act. And all of us would agree that those are unnatural deaths, right? 
And I'm sure all of us in here are hoping that we go out the quote unquote natural way, peace and quiet with our boots off, right? One of my favorite movies, the best cowboy movie of all time is Tombstone with Kurt Russell. Uh, there's a scene in there when Doc Holliday, the famous gunslinger, he's dying on his deathbed. And just before he comes to, he notices his feet and his boots are off. And he starts giggling because he knows that he's a gunslinger and he just imagined that he was going to die with his boots on. But he had so much joy in his heart that he was actually able to die a peaceful death with his boots off. It's a very funny scene. And I'm sure most of us hope that we die with our boots off. But something that we have to understand about death. When God cursed Adam in the garden by saying, you will surely die, he followed that up in Genesis 3.19 by saying, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What can we take from that? This. All death, not just violent deaths, not just misadventure, not just death and war, not just murder, but all death is unnatural. It's not how it was supposed to be in the beginning. God never intended death to be death. He intended life to lead way to eternal life, but because of the disobedient act of Adam, the unnatural death enters this world and reigns over every single one of us, which means none of us should be okay with death. Just like it's not okay to be murdered, so it's not okay to die of old age, and just like it's not okay to die in a horrific terrorist act, so it's not okay for there to be miscarriages and stillborn births. All death is unnatural, the Lord says. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our last great enemy is not violent death, but death. All of it is unnatural. And this is why when you read through scriptures, you'll see that the biblical authors are always indignant at the aspect of death. Take, for example, Solomon. Solomon saw the indignity of death when he lamented the fact that human beings share the same destiny as the animals. We should die like the animals. Why is he so indignant about that? Because that's not how it's supposed to be for human beings. Jesus himself in John 11, moments before he would raise this man from death, he wept when his best friend Lazarus died. Why? Because God says death is never how it was supposed to be. All death, any way you slice it or dice it, is because of the curse of Adam and it reigns over us all. Paul says, listen, the problem is much more severe than you think. Here's this three chain reaction thus far. One, through the willful disobedient act of the historical Adam, the power of sin enters our world through which the unnatural curse of death reigns over us. Now thirdly in 12C, Adam's action has universal effects. 12C says, death spreads to all men because all have sinned. Now, this is where we get a little tricky, okay? The key phrase here is all have sinned. Now, the verb tense for that word sinned is in the aorist form, okay? I'm going to get a little Greeky on you, so bear with me. What that means is uh, when it's in the aorist form, it refers back to a single past action in history. So that word sinned, it refers back to a single past action in history. Now, we get a little awkward when we combine that word with the all-inclusive term all. How does that make sense? What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, it's purposeful. This is what he's saying. He's saying that the whole human race of past, present, and future, doesn't matter what continent you were born on or what skin color you have, all of the human race sinned in one past action. That's what Paul says. Now, that's very important because what Paul is saying and what he explicitly says later in verses 18 through 19 is that Adam is a representative of all human history. And his unrighteousness has been imputed to every single one of us. 
So what Paul is saying is that you and I sin and die, not because we're like Adam, but you and I sin and die because we are in Adam. He is our representative. Now, of course, we have individual responsibility for our own individual sins, but that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is the unrighteousness of Adam reckoned to his posterity, which includes people like you and me as our representative. Now, this idea of representation, it should not be foreign to us, okay? Many of us remember the a famous woman, um, Jeanette Rankin. If you don't remember Jeanette Rankin, she was the first congresswoman in the history of the United States. But that is not what she's famous for. She is famous for, for being the only congresswoman, congressperson to vote against going to war with Japan in 1941. That's what she's famous for. She was uh, a feministic woman, a very strong pacifist, and she deeply believed that we should not go to war with Japan. But when President Roosevelt declared war on Japan, guess what happened? Little Miss Old Pacifist was at war with Japan, which is exactly what happens. When we are national representative, the president declares war in another country, whether if you agree with it or not, by you being an American citizen, you are at war with that country. That's just how it works. We have a national representative, and his actions dictates our lives. If he declares war, all of us are at war. That's representation. Now, again, we see this in Scripture. John Stock gives us some examples. Uh, one of my favorite examples was the story of Esau. Did you all read that? Esau, he sold off his birthright. And because of that action, not only him, but all of his descendants and posterity were excluded from the covenant promises of God. Not just him, but all of the people that he represented. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Adam did to all of humanity. He sold off our humanity and subjected every single one of us to sin and death and were completely unable to fix ourselves. This is the great ruin of man. By the one disobedient act of the historical Adam, the power of sin enters our world. Death reigns over every single one of us. And all of us are in the same boat of Adam because his unrighteousness was imputed onto every single one of us. Now that idea of corporate responsibility and solidarity does not fly in the American culture. Okay, there's people out there that say, you know, I get the idea of representation, but I didn't get to vote on Adam. I mean, how's that fair? I mean, if I was there, I would, have been, I would have done better. I've heard people say that before. Well, let's be real, okay? Um, God created Adam perfectly and sovereignly placed him as our head. I know that I cannot do better than that, okay? And I'm not smarter than God, so let's be real. But then other people out there will say, hey, well, still, this is not fair. I cannot be held responsible for another man's actions. At best, that's unfair. At worst, that's completely immoral. Well, there's several reasons that we can and should believe in the idea of federal headship. Number one, the text affirms it. This isn't just Barton or a reformed person saying this. The text affirms the idea of federal headship and representation. Paul explicitly teaches it in verses 18 through 19, but he says something very interesting also in verses 13 through 14. He says some pretty cool stuff. One, he says, everybody that existed between Adam and Moses, that is, before the actual law came down from the mountain, Everybody that existed before then, sin was still prevalent in them. However, because they had not received the physical law yet, their sins were not held counted against them. Now, that's fair. You know, they had the law of God written on their hearts, but still they didn't have the physical law before them. So God did not count that against them. However, death still reigned over them. So what is Paul saying? 
Paul is saying the chief cause of why they have the curse of death over them is not because of their personal sins, but rather the sins of Adam imputed onto them. So even before they knew the differences between right and wrong, they were already up a certain creek without the paddle because of what Adam did. That's what Adam, that's what Paul is teaching here. The text affirms it. Secondly, our context affirms it. You know, a lot of liberals and a lot of open-minded people hate this idea of being held responsible for the actions of another man. All right, but what's hilarious is in their open-mindedness, they're closed-minded to the fact that we've been conditioned by our own individualistic culture. For example, go on a mission trip to Asia or Africa. <laughs> those, those nations and those people groups firmly uphold the idea of corporate responsibility and solidarity. We see that all over the place. For crying out loud, we see it in America with American football. Did y'all see the Ole Miss and Arkansas game two weeks ago? My heart is still out on the floor, okay? That was disastrous. It was miraculous, but disastrous. In fact, one of, I won't tell you who, but one of our pastors the next day told me, see, Barton, God does bless pork. <laughs> Arkansas, Razorbacks. <laughs> you'll think, you'll get it later. But here you have this tight end, right, at the very end of the game, and he just chunks the ball 16 yards behind him, and it just happens to fall in the lap of the Arkansas running back, who would eventually later win the game. Now, as miraculous as that play was, will it go down in history that that tight end won the game? No, it will go down in history that the Arkansas Razorbacks won that game. Conversely, Hugh Freeze made some harebrained calls. But will it go down in history that Hugh Freeze lost that game? No, it will go down in history that the Ole Miss Black Bears lost that game. Solidarity. And we see this in Scripture too. The story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Achan, after they destroyed Jericho, he took spoils for himself. Spoils that were supposed to be devoted to destruction. But Achan took them. What did God say? God says, listen, all of you, not just Achan, but all of Israel disobeyed. My anger is kindled not just against Achan, but against all of Israel. Corporate responsibility, solidarity. The context affirms it. But thirdly, and most importantly, we should want this. In fact, this is the only hope for sinners like us. Now, you in here, I imagine some of you at least, are saying, Barton, I believe this. But how in the world is this good news? I'll tell you how this is good news. If Adam's disobedience is our disobedience, apart from anything that we've done on our own, well, what if there was a second Adam, a perfect Adam, who willingly takes our spot, his spot, as our representative. If there was such a man, then this man would represent all of us before the heavenly throne that are Christians and would give us life that we're unable to have in Adam or in ourselves. This is why this is stinking good news for us that God deals with representatives, because, deals with us through representatives, because in 14c, Paul says Adam was simply a type of the perfect Adam to come. And gentlemen, this is the all-important parallel for us. The chief reason, the deepest reason that death reigns over us is not because of our own individual acts of, of unrighteousness, but because of the righteous, unrighteousness imputed to us. In the same way also, the chief reason that for Christians life reigns over us is not because of our individual deeds of righteousness, but because of the righteousness of God through Jesus has been imputed to us. My friends, that is the great news of the gospel. And that's what Paul is trying to show us here. So in verses 12 through 14, he says, listen, there is a great ruin of man in Adam. 
but still we're starting to see the light, aren't we? We're starting to see how salvation works. We're starting to see the glory of Christ and how we can be secure in it. Now, the second overall point is the greatness of man's rescue in verses 15 through 19. Believe it or not, this passage is not primarily about Adam's sin and its effects on all of us. I know Paul talks about it a little bit, and I know I just spent a ton of time on it, but that's not what this passage is primarily about. What this passage is primarily about is the action of Jesus and its effects on his people. Remember earlier, I said this passage is kind of like a, a Rembrandt painting. Well, Paul wanted to make sure that we understood the darkness of our union to Adam so that we could see the greatness and glory of our union in Christ. And in it, he says, this is how you can be secure in your salvation. Now, in verses 15 through 17, he gives us this threefold contrast. Up until this point, he's been comparing them. Adam's is your first head. Christ is your second head. That's the end of the comparison. From here on out, it's a distinction. And in verse 15, we get that first distinguishment. When he distinguishes between the two actions of Adam and Christ. Paul says, gentlemen, you want to see the glory of Christ? Pay attention to the two actions of Adam and Christ respectively. More than that, pay attention to the motivations of those actions. Let's think about Paul first. Paul's action in the garden, Paul describes as a trespass, all right? Now, what is a trespass? A trespass is a willful violation of God's law. It's a conscious sin, which is exactly what Adam did. He ate from that apple when he knew that he wasn't supposed to. He wanted to dethrone God because he wanted the glory. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Adam threw humanity under the bus into condemnation because he wanted self-glory. The heart, the motivation of his trespass was selfishness, which of course is the motivation for all of our sin, right? Every time I get in a major argument with my wife, never has anything to do with morality. Always has something to do with me being a royal pain in the cheeks. All the time, okay? It's because I routinely want to elevate and exalt my desires and my wishes over hers. The heart of my sin is selfishness, and the heart of your sin is selfishness, and the heart of Adam's first trespass was selfishness, and it led to our condemnation. However, Paul says, the action of Christ was not a selfish act. It was a selfless act, and it's a gift. What is that gift? In the words of Uncle Eddie, it's the gift that keeps on giving, gentlemen. It is the righteousness of God. Through the substitutionary act of Jesus Christ, Jesus offers us the righteousness of God. So it's not a self, selfish uh, uh, a trespass that leads to condemnation, but rather it's a selfless act that leads to righteousness. And furthermore... The primary reason that Jesus did this was because he was being obedient to his father, but also because he had compassion on people like you and me. So in selflessness, he threw aside his glory so that you and I might be glorified. And Paul says, don't you realize the difference between these two actions of your heads? How much greater is the glory and grace of Jesus Christ? This is what he's done for you. Now in verse 16, he goes on to that second distinction, and he distinguishes between the two results of the action. Now we're told that because of Adam's selfish act, we've all been led into condemnation. His unrighteousness has been imputed to us, which means that we all have the guilt of condemnation, and we're justifiably damned before God. And what makes the matters worse, as we see in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, we're just digging our holes deeper. Each time we sin over and over again, we're storing up more and more wrath in ourselves. However, 
The gift that Jesus Christ offers, Paul says, leads to your justification. Not condemnation, but rather justification. Now, this is a big deal because this is not a simple exchange, okay? It's not a simple exchange. I want us to think about this for a moment. All things considered equal, or zero, rather. When Adam sinned, he took us into the negative. He took us into the red. He took us into the negative. Now, that means if Jesus, the only thing that was accomplished in his substitutionary death was the forgiveness of our sins, that would only take us to zero, which is great news, but it's still zero and therefore not enough to take us into heaven. But this is what Christ did at the cross. Through his passive obedience, dying on the cross, he does remove our sins. But through his active obedience, life lived, perfect life lived, his righteousness is credited to our account which means that Jesus does not just take us to zero, but rather he takes us into affinity. Kind of like when I was in college, I would often overdraft my account. Never a fun phone call home, gentlemen, all right? Um, whenever my account read negative 130, I was never excited to call my father. However, my father, being the good father that he is, doesn't just give me $130. I mean, that would be great, but that just takes me to zero, which means I'm still in danger of going into the negative. So what does he do? He gives me several hundred more dollars, so I'll be safe. Gentlemen, that's what Jesus Christ does for you. He takes you out of your debt, and he gives you the infinite riches of heaven. That's what Christ does for us. How great is the glory of Jesus, Paul says. Now in verse 17, we get that third distinction, okay? I'm gonna go through this pretty quickly. Uh, the third distinction is the ultimate effect of the two actions. Adam's actions leads to the reign of death. Christ's action leads to the reign of life. Now the point here is not a simple transfer. Jesus doesn't simply transfer us out of death into life, but he does such a marvelous work in you that he enables you to reign in life as kings. That's what Christ does. How much greater is the glory and the grace of Christ? Now, in verses 18 through 19, Paul tells us the greater imputation of Christ. Now, this is a summary of all the things that he said before. And he wants it to bring it home very contactly, compactly, because he wants to show us how we can be secure in our salvation. Paul summarizes by saying that Adam, our first head, sinned, and God saw in Adam the whole human race as being guilty. However, in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he is the head of a new spiritual race, a new spiritual race. He did not sin, and God saw in Christ's innocence all those who are united to him by faith as being innocent. Friends, do you see the Rembrandt painting here? Do you see what Christ has done for us? Do you see this? He doesn't just put us back together again, but he restores us completely. In fact, he transforms us completely into a new humanity. Christ has put your pieces back together. He's made you completely new. And this is why we can be secure in it, because just as you were condemned apart from yourself, my friends, you've been justified apart from yourself. The forgiveness of your sins, your justification, your adoption, your sanctification, your eventual glorification, eternal life that we can enjoy here but fully later, our reign as little princes and princesses, none of that is contingent upon your work or what you do, but all of it is contingent upon what Christ has done, which we simply receive by faith. Christ is in the business of gathering little broken atoms like ourselves and restoring us into little Christs. 
my friends, that is what Jesus has done. Do you see what this does? Do you see what this means? It means that you and I no longer have to doubt salvation because it's not contingent upon us. It's contingent upon what Christ has done. So there's no more fear for the Christian. Secondly, it frees us from license because we've seen the glory of Jesus. We've seen how great he is. We've seen how delicious he is. We see what he does for us. So we're no longer craving after donuts and cheeseburgers, which are going to kill us because we've received the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ himself. He frees us from license. And thirdly, he frees us from legalism. No longer do we have to wring our knuckles and sweat and worry about performing for God because Christ has already performed for God and he's accepted him, which means he's accepted you. That's what Christ has done for you, gentlemen. How much greater is the glory of Christ, Paul says. And this is why you can be secure in your salvation. Now, thirdly and finally, the greatness of the reign of redeemed humanity in Christ. The greatness of the reign of redeemed humanity in Christ. Verses 20 through 21. Now, I'm going to skip real quickly over verse 20. John Stott has some cool stuff to say about it. So does Tim Keller. But ultimately, what that verse is getting at is that the grace of God is far greater than your greatest sin. And you can take that to the bank. You're covered in the far greater grace of God. It covers your greatest sin. But what I want to focus on is verse 21. The reign of grace and the righteous in Christ. I want us to focus and think about this. Because, gentlemen, this, this passage was written to Christians. It wasn't written to non-believers. It's applicable for non-believers. I hope they hear the good news of this passage. But Paul wrote this for people like you and me. And as we see in verses 17 and 21... Paul tells us what Jesus has done to people like you and me. He's redeemed us to be kings. He's redeemed us to reign. That's who you are as a new creation in Christ. You're a little prince, you're a little princess. Christ has made you a little Christ. And one day that will be made perfectly evident to all of creation when we're before the throne of God. So the idea, how do we reign as kings? Well, in the here and now, this is, this is how we reign. We bring the promises of God to bear in this world. We extend the new human ethic, the new creation ethic to all of the people in our relationships, like grace, like mercy, like restoration, like justice. We extend those things which Christ has shown us to the people in our lives, like our neighbors, like our wives, like our children, like our coworkers, like people in our city and around the world. We, we show them who's on the throne and we show them this new kingdom because as it is in the old way, in Adam, this is what happened. Sin reigned. Selfishness reigned. Meism reigned. Death reigned. But no longer in Christ. Grace reigns. Life reigns. Righteousness reigns. And we reign as kings in the here and now by showing people that that is so by the way we live and by the way we talk and how we share Christ with people. But ultimately in Romans 8 and Revelation 21 and 20, we see where this leads, our ultimate reign, where we, alongside the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, will rule alongside him over all of creation. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that all of creation, the plants, the animals, the trees, the rivers, the oceans, the skies, literally long for the day that the people in Christ will be revealed as they are to the world, little Christs. Creation is longing for the day when that happens. Friends, I believe this is why Paul gives us this passage because he wants to encourage us to live as we are. Because the truth is, we often don't live as we are. We often live as broken slaves in Adam. We often live as the ancient pagan king Adini Bezek in Judges chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. I heard this illustration and I'm going to share it with you really quickly. I know we're running out of time. 
But Bezek, he was a pagan king. And when the uh, invasion of Israel into the promised land, uh, Joshua ended up finding Bezek. So he grabbed a hold of him. And Joshua did to Bezek what Bezek did to many kings before him. He cut off his thumbs and he cut off his toes. Seems kind of weird. This is why he did it. It was symbolic. Even though that Bezek was very much a king, without a thumb he can't hold a scepter. And he can't rule. And without his toes he can't get on his horse and stride across his kingdom. In fact, he was regulated to just simply eating scraps underneath the table. Even though he was king, he was regulated to eating scraps underneath the table. And friends, sometimes we act as if we don't have thumbs and toes. And we eat the scraps underneath our table. But what Paul wants us to understand is, listen, we have been redeemed in Christ. Not only do we have thumbs and toes, but we've been completely made new. And we don't have to settle for the scraps underneath our table because we have received the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ himself as our sustenance. And he's given us all the infinite riches of heaven. We have been made little princes and princesses in Christ. And Paul says, friends, live as you are. How do we live as we are? How do we get back to that? Well, we just follow the script of this passage. We contemplate the great ruin of Adam. We contemplate the darkness of our sin which will shed light and magnify the glory and the greatness of the rescue in Christ. So friends, as we consider and, and contemplate our humble posture as sinners, but rejoice in our exalted position in Christ, this is what that does. It produces faith in you for the present. A faithful kingship. Every single one of us in Christ need to do that every single day. Remember what Christ has done. Now, the other thing, those of you in here who, just like me about 10 years ago, who are still contemplating Christ, you have to ask yourself this one question. Which Adam do you want representing you? It's got to be one or the other. Do you want the Adam who leads you to death? Or do you want the Adam who makes you a king? Friends, the great news of the gospel is, is that he gathers broken Adams like us and he transforms us into little Christs. Praise be to God. Amen. Haven't we? <laughs> All right. I had a small amen. Let me go ahead and pray for us, though. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group. I pray that, Lord, you would uh, remind us who we are in Christ, that you would affirm for us the salvation that we have in Jesus, and that, Lord, that would lead us to worship, to freedom, and to joy. And we pray that we would carry that with us to work today and back home when we were with our families. We love you, Father, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.